Father, we are dependent on your spirit to do the work this morning. Uh, If it's dependent on me, uh, I think we're all in trouble. And so I need to depend on you and we need to depend on you. And your word says that if we trust in you and follow your, uh, your commands, you will act. And so we trust your spirit to act powerfully through the teaching and preaching of your word. So let the truth of your word reign supreme in our hearts and minds. <clears throat> and I pray that your word would do the work that it does, which is transform our hearts and minds to think like Christ, to be like Christ, to magnify Christ, to honor and glorify Christ, to exalt Jesus. We want to be like Christ, and we depend wholly and fully on your word for that to happen. So just pray that this morning the power and beauty and magnificence of your word would penetrate our souls and break down our hardened hearts and the areas of life that we are rebelling against you and choosing to sin and rejecting you in any way, shape, or form, that your word would tear down those walls and you would create in us unity together and the power of your spirit. We trust you in this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so what we'll see today's text in 1, Peter 3, or 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, is a turning point in Paul's letter to Timothy. The first three chapters are positive instructions. The last three chapters serve as uh, warnings for the church. So you can take this letter from Paul to Timothy and split it right down the middle, chapters 1, 2, and 3, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and they are essentially two different agendas. The first three chapters being the agenda where Paul's informing and instructing and teaching. This is what church should look like. This is what men's roles and women's roles look like. This is what prayer looks like. This is who should be doing what in the church. This is how women should uh, act, behave, think, feel, dress even in the church and in their relationships, and this is how men should think, feel, act, what they should do in the church, um, the importance of sound doctrine, I don't know if I already said that, but uh, then, and, and that is a, a kind of almost a, a separate letter, in essence, to the last three chapters, which are more warning-based, a lot more severity in those texts, and as you'll see, like when we get to chapter five, there's clarity on like church discipline, and so there's like these warnings against sin, and uh, we also get a lot of info about uh, false teachers and how we respond to that and what it means to be a servant of Christ and what we need to be careful of and so on and so forth. So this is a, a very important text because what, at the end of chapter 3 and verses 14 through 16 is this pivotal turning point where we're transitioning from the first half of the letter to the last half of the letter. And what's beautiful about this turning point is it's not just some random text. The text itself is massively elemental to the significance, importance, function, and the truth that the church bears. And we'll see that as we walk through this text this morning. But when you put uh, together the entirety of this letter, what you see come out of this is kind of the, the, the ultimate claim of the church. So our text today is essentially creating for the church kind of the the mantra of the church, like the chant, the confession, the belief, what we're doing and what we believe. Like that is essentially what Paul is getting at. So it makes it not just important in terms of its placement, that it's between the middle, that's right in the middle of the letter, but that not only being in the, not only is it in the middle of the letter, but it also serves as a massively important clarity for the church on who we are and what we're doing. So There are two things that Paul does in today's text. He clarifies two things and he validates two things. And those two things are the mission of the church and the message of the church. And that's what we'll see is first Paul's going to start with this is the mission of the church, which he'll reveal in the theme of the letter. And then this is the message of the church. So we'll walk through that as we go through the text. And we'll start in verse 14 and Paul says... To Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, verse 15, 
if I delay. Now we're just going to stop there because Paul was delayed when he was in Macedonia. After being released from prison in Rome, we see that happen at the end of the book of Acts. Paul's released from Roman imprisonment. It's his first imprisonment in Rome. He goes to Macedonia, and while in Macedonia, he wants to visit Timothy, but he can't. He's delayed in Macedonia and therefore unable to visit Timothy, hence why he wrote this letter. And then in the letter saying, I really, my goal is to come to you. And actually the Greek for I hope to come to you soon really is better translated, I hoped that I would have come to you sooner. Kind of clarifying the urgency of this letter. Because if you think about what the, what's going on in the church, the church is it's new, first century church, new Every believer is a new believer. I mean, maybe there's some believers who have known about Christ for maybe 20 years, but the establishment of the church is fairly new, and the functionality of the church is new. I mean, think about it. For all of us, if let's say you were raised in a Christian home. You're raised in a Christian home. You go to church every Sunday. You already know that you've got a pastor and elders and deacons, and there's older people and younger people, and the church is a mix of people, and some of the, you know, you know an eight- Maybe you were a kid and you knew an 80-year-old who went to your church and he'd been a believer for 70 years. That didn't exist in the first century. This was all new. They didn't know what to do. These letters are massively important. They, they have no idea what to do and how to function and what, what is obedience. What does obedience look like? What do we do in this scenario? Can I sue another believer? Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. No. Can I, you know, and they've got a list of questions that Paul answers throughout all of his letters and it provides clarity for the early church on how to function, how the church is to be organized, how the Christian is supposed to behave. And, and he doesn't just give us the instructions on what to do and how to do it. He also teaches us the doctrine and the theology that underlies those commands. This is who you are. This is how you should function. This is how you should behave. This is what the church should be. This is how the church should be structured and operate. But all of that is set on top of something more important, which is the sound doctrine that tells us how those things happen. And things like, why do we obey? We're told to obey, but why? Well, because you're in Christ, and your obedience isn't the work of your flesh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit magnifying and manifesting Christ out of you. So he doesn't just tell us, hey, do these things. He's like, hey, do these things, and here's why you should do them, here's how you do them, it's the work of God to manifest his spirit through you and therefore produce fruit, and then he clarifies what that fruit looks like and what kind of impact it has on the world and the rest of the church and on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there's a lot more to it than just rules. It's not just instructions like do this and do that, because that would just be legalism. That would just be moralism. And instead, Paul clarifies, because there's an urgency for the church, because he can't visit them, he has to write this letter and say, listen, before you guys start getting in the kind of the wrong flow of things, you've got to recognize the, the instructions that the Lord Jesus gave Paul directly for how the church should function, look, and operate, and what behavior the church should live in and do and and not just that, but why and how and the theological implications and all that stuff. So the urgency comes because the church is just kind of flailing on its own. You know, it's like a, it's, it's new. They don't have a history behind it. They, they've, they've got elders established, but, but they, they don't really have a ton of clarity. And keep in mind that Paul already wrote his letter to the Ephesians, which is the same church that Timothy is at. So they already have the first letter from that, that was written by Paul, which is theologically super rich. Like Ephesians, which personally for me is one of my favorite. I hate when pe- I hate that we have favorites, right? And like in my favorite Bible verse or favorite book of the Bible, it's like, well, does that make the other ones worse? Of course not. But I just, it's so theologically rich and practically rich. The letter to the Ephesians is a lot like Paul's letter to Timothy. Both are six chapters long. Now keep in mind, Paul didn't put chapters in here, right? We added those later. Verses, those were added later. Paul didn't. In in Greek, there's not even spacing. It's just one long word (laughs) that goes on for page after page after page. And so, um, but but Ephesians and 1 Timothy, both written to the church in Ephesus, uh, are very similar. Both are six chapters. Both have the first three chapters as theology, 
uh, or both have, have the, the first three chapters as one genre, and the last three chapters as another genre. In Ephesians, the first three chapters are theology and doctrine, and the last three chapters are like the practice and the practical, pragmatic implications that come from that theology, similar to the way he writes to Timothy here. And so the church has some, they got Ephesians, they have that letter, and, you know, they're doing well, but also not because it's a church full of sinners, and we know what that's like, Right? And we're 2,000 years removed from this, and we still struggle with these things. How much harder do you think it was for the early church that didn't have as much clarity as we have? They didn't have the complete work of God in the Bible the way we have it today. So they're getting these letters on the fly, and they need help, and they're sinning, and there's people who are teaching false doctrines. There's heretics and false preachers, and there's bad doctrine, and there's bad practice. And Paul's like, you got to get this letter. So I want to come to you sooner, but I had to write you this letter. And he also indicates in this text why he is writing this letter. He's going to tell us, like I said earlier, two important truths about the church in these verses. He's going to tell us the mission of the church, and he's going to tell us the message of the church that we take on that mission. So Paul goes on in verse 15 to tell us why he writes specific the specific content of this letter, why he says what he says. And he writes in verse 15, I am writing these things to you so that, that's verse 14, Verse 15, that you may know how one ought to behave. So that is the theme of this letter, how the church ought to behave and how the church ought to function. So I'm not just talking about, he's talking about individual behavior and the function or operation of the structure of the church. Elders, deacons, leadership, who does what, who's qualified for what, what you do in certain situations. How, you know, there's a clarity to the, like structure of the church, the building of the body in sort of a somewhat kind of like a legal formation of the church in addition to the individual uh, application that Paul gives to the church on how to live their lives for Christ. And so the church is instructed on how to act in a way that is best suited for representing Christ, honoring God, and for us to be satisfied in Christ. Paul's not saying that behavior is the only thing that matters. He's not pushing moralism. Rather, he's communicating in this letter what the fruit of the Spirit will produce in a healthy church of maturing believers. And this letter instructs us toward that kind of mature health. Now, at the end of verse 15, Paul tells us the mission of the church. He says, In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. The the household of God there indicates that we're a family, members of God's household, Christ being the head, we being the submissive followers, much like a husband is the head of the family and the wife is submissive to him, which is a direct correlation that Paul makes in several of his letters, calling Christ the husband and the body of Christ the bride. And he correlates that to marriage and on earth. And being that we are members of God's household, there's a certain way we ought to act. So this is important. God gets to tell us how to act. Just as a parent tells their children how to act. I mean, just, I, I don't know what your life was like growing up. I don't know what your life is like now. But if I told my kids that they had to do a certain thing and they said, how about I tell you what you ought to do? That would be the last time he talks to me like that. (laughs) He would either shape it up or or live somewhere else. Anyways, kind of kidding. Um, The point is, it would be ridiculous in most cases, because I know this does happen in our fallen world today, but it would be ridiculous for a child to run the house. You know, it happens, Uh, but when it happens, we would all agree there is chaos and disorder in that house if the child is running the house. Chaos and disorder. It doesn't work. It doesn't function. It will not uphold. It will not last. The parents will get exhausted. And so, you know, I've heard this growing up from my dad. If you're going to live in my home, you're going to live by my rules, right? And that's the truth. That's the rule. You live in my house, live by my rules. You don't want to live by my rules, you can live in a different house. That might not be your philosophy, but I've heard that said, you know, whether in movies or TV or in your own life. 
And so it makes sense because we are part of God's household. And he's the father and we're the children, heirs with Christ, fellow children of God the Father with Jesus the Son, and we are fellow heirs with Christ. We are told what to do. He has the right, God has the authority and the power to tell us what we have to do. And what he says goes. And there's just no way around it because he's our authority and we are his and that that is the most important part because when I look at my children, I don't just think, um, you live in my house, so you do what I say. I think, you are my possession, so you do what I say. I am your authority. I made you. And because I made you, you are mine until you are released into the world to be your own. And so while you're in my household and you are my possession, you will operate and function according to my rules. And that is not a dictatorship and an authoritarian perspective like, I'm in charge because I'm the dad. Not that kind of attitude, but a, you're going to do what I say because you are my possession, and you're my possession because I love you. And I know what's best for you. And I know what's good for you, and I know what's bad for you, so I'm going to instruct you and teach you and direct you and guide you to what is best for you and good for you and healthy for you and magnifies my glory. I'm speaking from God's perspective now. Um, And then not only that, but when you aren't doing the things you're supposed to do that are good for you, I'm going to discipline you, which we see in Hebrews 12, that earthly fathers do for their children. The children don't like it, and neither do the fathers, but it has to be done because we love our kids. And that is how the Father treats us. And because we are his possession, he gets to tell us what to do. He has the right and the authority. And not only does God the Father have the right and authority to tell us what to do because we're his creation, but even more so to believers. Is he allowed and supposed to direct us and command us and lead us and guide us and give us commands and expect us to follow those commands and discipline us when we don't. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And the price that you were bought with was the blood of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross paid for your life. His death on the cross brought you into fellowship with God the Father. His death on the cross has purchased not just your physical body on this earth, not just your, your heart and mind, but your eternity. And so you are placed and an eternal projection forever in the presence of a loving God who is your Father. And so everything he does for you today is for your good on this earth, even when it's discipline, even when it hurts, even when it's hard, it's for your good. Do you think I like, do you think parents, good parents who discipline their children and have to spank them, do you think those parents enjoy spanking their children? Probably not. I don't. I don't want to do that. That's not fun for me. That's why we tell our kids, this hurts me more than it hurts you, because it does hurt us, and we don't like doing it. But we have to. It's for their good. And God treats us the same. This is such a wonderful blessing that Jesus Christ endured, suffered the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the Most High. So like, that truth that the shedding of the blood of Christ on the cross for you has bought your life and brought your life into the family of God. And now, God has all authority, rule, and reign over you. He did before as well. We just didn't recognize it. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit who applies the death of Christ to our hearts and minds and enables us to live in fellowship with God and in relationship with God through Christ, now with that Holy Spirit, we, we can be aware that we are under God's authority. 
before being a believer, even if we recognize God or believe that God exists, but we don't have a relationship with God through Christ, we can't truly understand what that relationship is supposed to be like. But now that we've been saved by Christ and brought into relationship with God, now we have the Holy Spirit who enlightens our minds and our understanding to reveal to us that God really is our authority, but he's not just our authority, he's our loving father, a patient, kind, forgiving, uh, compassionate God who's discipline for us serves a purpose of glory and satisfaction in him and so that is like that being in christ the fact that we are purchased by his blood this this verse first corinthians 6 19 through 20 that you are not your own you're bought with a price that isn't some uh boast that god makes about hey i paid for you you're mine do what i say that's not god's attitude toward us that shouldn't be our attitude towards our children either. Like God's attitude toward us is I sacrificed the life of my son for you. That's how much I love you, Romans 5. So, or Romans 8. And so, what the purchase from Christ's blood does for us is it creates not just our submission to God that we're aware of, but it creates a loving relationship between us and God which we didn't have before. So now his authority takes on a different role for us, a different perspective, because it's not just that he's the boss and he tells us what to do, it's that he's my loving father who cares for my soul. What he's telling me is good for me. I might not want to do it, it might be hard to do, to obey all these commands, to follow him, to sacrifice, to suffer, to endure trials. And in Hebrews 12, it tells us that you haven't, you haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood like Christ did, so continue to endure. So even in the moments where things are hard and life is difficult and life is a struggle and there's trials and tribulations and hardships which you've all faced to varying degrees, in those moments we have this encouragement from Hebrews 12, yeah, but you haven't died for Christ yet. So keep going. You keep going. You keep enduring, and we'll see this in 1 Timothy 6, that we have to continue to fight the good fight. Keep running the race. Don't stop running. Don't give up on the marathon. Don't give up on the race. Keep going. Keep fighting. Keep racing. Keep enduring. Keep struggling. Keep up in the challenges, and endure them with joy. That's James chapter 1. So we, we have that encouragement because we're told, well, Jesus did it in perfection, to the point of dying. And if you are not yet dead, then you still have legs to keep running this race. You still have arms to keep fighting this fight. So keep going. Continue. Endure. Remain faithful. Don't give up. Finish the race. Amen. So. We are His children. We live by His Spirit. We are saved by His Son. We are part of His family. And we must live and behave according to His ways and His commands. And if we do not, then 1 John 3, 9 tells us, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. That is who we are in Christ. Meaning if we do not live according to his ways, being that we are his possession, then maybe we are not a part of his family or never were. Therefore, the clarity that Paul provides in this letter on how the members of God's family ought to act is necessary for godly living. And not just for moral instructions, for, but for actual transformation of our heart and mind. Again, if you're just taking the rules of Scripture and just doing like, I do all the things I'm supposed to do right, well, that's not the goal. That's not the point. If that, if that was the point, then the Pharisees were right. When they were just like, we, just, we got 613 Old Testament laws, we got to follow, we're going to add an additional 600 laws of our own that help us follow God's laws. So we got about 1,200 laws. We're going to live those laws, and if we do them, we're, God will be pleased with us. And Jesus hated that false gospel. That's heresy. That's literally legalism, earning God's favor through, uh, through your works, through your obedience, apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the work of Christ, apart from the application of Jesus' death on the cross to your soul. Without Christ, you cannot please God. Hebrews 11 
says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely required to bring any satisfaction to God, to bring any pleasure to God, for you to be in any position of relationship with God is mandatory. So just following rules makes no sense. Following rules to get saved, not possible. But then again, if we believe in Christ, and then in being in Christ, we then turn to a false gospel of, now that I'm in Christ, I just have to obey the rules. Now you've taken a gospel that is of grace, and then when you try to live that gospel in your Christian life, you're living it by works. So the gospel that saved you is not the gospel you're going to live by? That doesn't make sense. The gospel that saved you is the gospel that continues to save you that secures your salvation. We continue to operate and live our lives in and through the gospel. Only by God's grace can we obey these rules. And our disobedience is covered by God's grace. As much as scripture reiterates over and over and over again the importance of obedience and that obedience is the means by which you, are become, you become confident in your security and who you are in Christ, even though obedience serves a very important function for the believer, it is not by our continuation of good works that we are secured. It is by Christ alone. And so to, to have like a works-based or moral mentality that I just, you know, and I think we all turn to that. Like, I, I don't know about you, but like I, I study this Bible a lot. I love it. So full of so many good things. Every week I'm learning something new all the time, constantly. I hope that when I'm 85 years old and studying the Bible, my mind is still getting blown. I bet it will be. But as much as I feel like I'm growing and learning the Bible, I still, in my flesh, regularly, instantly without even attempting it, it's just, it's like second nature for me to do this. I feel like my relationship with God is so dependent on my behavior. Like I know that if I sin, I'm still secure in Christ. Like I know that, I know that in the back of my mind, but then I feel like, oh God, uh, I have to be good. Oops, I'm sinning, I have to be good. And God's like, what? I mean, you do, but that's, you're miss you skipped the most important thing. You went from I'm sinning, be good. You skipped the gospel. You jumped from I'm bad, I gotta behave. You can't behave unless it's behavior through the gospel. You can't hop over the gospel and just try to be a good person. You have to become a good person by the work of the Holy Spirit that is manifested in you through the gospel. So you don't turn to yourself and good behavior when you're trapped in sin. You turn to Christ. You turn to the gospel, you open the word, you pray, you serve, you love, you give, you do the godly disciplines that God demands of us. You, 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 you wrench your heart, you fall flat on your face on the floor before God, humbled by the glorious presence of an almighty God whose presence should terrify the hell out of us. And in this very God that doesn't seem to scare us very much, we think that we can get by without him. We think that we can satisfy this God without him. So we just hop right over the cross. Do you know what Jesus said to Peter when, G when Peter told Jesus, Hey, whoa, Jesus, you don't have to die. Peter asked Jesus not to die on the cross. Jesus said, I gotta die. And Peter said, no, you don't. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That's... That's us when we try to behave out of your own good works, out of your own power. You cannot behave on your own. You are trash. <laughs> I mean, you are, and so am I. We are, we are literally trash, and I'm saying that because that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that all of my works, he says, are, the Greek is skabala, and that word means garbage. It actually means dung, but that's essentially what it means in first century garbage and so we are literally trash like our works are trash and i'm not saying that like oh people are trash and you know god created us in his image and his likeness so there is beauty and glory in every human being as we are care carry and and bear this uh, image and likeness of god and in that there is glory 
Even in unbelievers, there's, there's glory of God that is revealed out of the likeness of God that is, that, that is in them. So I'm not saying like human beings are trash and God makes trash and you're trash. I'm saying everything you've ever tried to do on your own is garbage. It, it, if you put it at God's feet, he just goes, not good enough. So, so what is good enough then? What is good enough? Christ. Christ is good enough and that's it. That is it. That is all that's going to count in eternity. That is, anything that you do on your own is garbage before God, and anything you do in Christ is glory for God. And so, if we are in sin, and we feel like, oh, I just got to start behaving, I got to start being good, oh, I got to fix this, and I got to stop sinning, that's not the right attitude, that's not the right perspective. You have to stop and go, Lord, help me! Fix me. Fill me with your spirit. Pray to God. Be in the word. Talk to a friend. Confess your sins. Do something. Do something. Serve. Give. Uh, 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 go to every Bible study. Go to every prayer meeting. Go, I mean, just get into Christ. And pray, 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 pray. And don't stop praying. And just submit yourself to the Lord. And say, I am sinning, God. I cannot stop sinning if I just try to be a good person. So I am dependent on Christ, Father, so help me crush my sin, hate my sin, conquer my sin. I know it's already been paid for on the cross. I know it's already taken care of. I need your help to live it now. And if I try my own, it'll be worthless. But if I trust in you, you will do it. That's the kind of attitude that God's looking for. That's the kind of righteousness that produces fruit of righteousness. When we approach obedience through the gospel, not without it. Now, as Paul is talking about God, this is not just a hypothetical or merely a theological endeavor for Paul. This is reality. Because in verse 15, Paul calls the household of God, listen to these words, church of the living God. Now, I love that phrase, the living God. It just almost reminds, it's, it's a, we see it in Hebrews 10.31 as well when he says that uh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that word, those words living God is always a reminder to us that this is not a joke. This is real. God is real. And he is alive. He is alive and active. He is true and real, the living God, who Paul says in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being, meaning God is real. God is, is really a living God, a, or really by, by being the living God, and if this living God is really alive and really, truly active, as he says he is in scripture, then everything in scripture about him is also true, meaning this God is truth. Therefore, making the church, verse 15, a pillar and buttress of truth. That is the mission of the church, to be the pillar and the buttress of truth. Now, <laughs> the word buttress, it's like one of those old words that none of us use anymore. Um, the, the word really just means ground, and then there's the pillar, so the buttress is the ground and a pillar upholds a building that stands on that ground. So you can see what he's conveying is this idea of a firm foundation. The church is the firm foundational ground upon which the pillars of truth about God stands. Do you hear that? That's the mission of the church. The church is the firm foundational ground upon which the pillars of truth, which are also the church, about God stands. Meaning the mission of the church is to be an immovable truth bearer, not wavering from the truth in a world that makes up its own truths and its own rules and defies God and does not follow him, obey him, believe in him, love him, or pursue him at all. And therefore, because they don't have Christ, they don't know God the Father, and if they don't know God the Father, they can't know truth. And so they make up their own truths. And we, the church, are the unique representation of God's truth on earth. That's the mission of the church, to be a pillar and a buttress of truth, a firm foundational standing on firm ground and upholding like a pillar the truth of who God is, the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the truth of the gospel, which ultimately is Paul's point, is he's really getting to what the, the mission of the church is, is not only 
to uphold all the truths of Scripture, but specifically to uphold the gospel. And if we were to take a step back from the Bible and see it from beginning to end and understand kind of the fullness of all biblical doctrines, which I'll admit I don't know all the fullness of biblical doctrines and no one does. Um, But if we were to step back and see the bigger picture, what we see is the gospel. And we tend to look at the gospel as like the sliver that just happens in the beginning of the New Testament, right? Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave. And if you believe in him, you'll be saved. And that's the gospel. Boom, right there. But really, the gospel is the good news, right? That's what the word means. Gospel means good news. It comes from Latin good spell, meaning good news. And so we've got this good news, which is the gospel. And the good news is what? That we get God through Christ. And so if you look at the whole Bible with this mentality that the gospel is that I get God. I get God. I don't deserve God. I deserve hell. But I get God by his grace. So that's specifically that little sliver of truth about the life and death and resurrection of Christ that is applied to us by the grace of God and by the faith he gives us. That's still true. But with this mentality that the good news is I get God, and you look at the whole story of the Bible from that perspective, what you soon realize is that from the beginning, Genesis, to the end, Revelation, the entire book is the gospel. The gospel is the whole story of Reality, the whole story of the earth and the world and God and everything in relationship to him. Everything is created by Christ and sustained by Christ. It's all for, the, for God's glory and to God's glory, to Christ and for Christ and from Christ. You see that in Colossians chapter 1. So the gospel is the good news that we get God and the entire word of God is the gospel. And so the church being a pillar and buttress of truth and that truth being the gospel means that we uphold and stand firmly and declare and proclaim and confess truth of God's word. And if we don't do it, no one will. In fact, I will say, I will go as far as to say not even all churches do it. So how much even more, how much more even important is it for us to be that kind of church? So the essence of this mission of the church, I think, is clarified by Paul in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And I'm going to read this for you because I just want you to just follow along and just, you know, you can read on the screen or follow in your Bible or just close your eyes and, like, take it in. Because this is essentially God's kind of big, this is a beautiful summary of what is the point of the church? What is the mission and purpose of of the church. What are we doing here? Why do we show up on Sundays? Why do we have Bible studies? And why are we going to go to Lemores and have a pool party? Why, why are we going to hang out together? Why, are we have, why do we have potlucks? Why do we clean the church? Why do we serve in ministries? Why do we sing music on Sunday mornings? Why do we pray? Why do we have prayer meetings? Why do, we, why do I meet people and do one-on-one discipleship with them? Why do we serve one another's needs? Why do we give to the church? Why, why, is, why do we do all the things we do? Why do we function the way we function? Why do we have elders? Why do we have deacons? So it's like the big why question has to be answered. What is the point of all of this? And the most basic and most important answer is, well, for God's glory. But that's the answer to everything. And so more specifically, well, then how does this glorify God? And so we get this beautiful uh, expression from Paul kind of summarizing what really is the mission and point of the church. And so I'm going to read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the, to the unity of faith and, the, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice some major themes in the mission of the church. Growth, maturity, sound doctrine, knowledge of God, and love. These are all elements, along with others, that make up the mission of the church to grow into the maturity of Christ by being established in the truth of who God is, so to avoid being swept away by faulty doctrine 
but being firmly planted in the truth of the gospel revealed by your love for one another and your love for Christ. We're the only representation of truth on this earth, so it is imperative that our mission be that we are a pillar and a buttress of truth. But we can't be if we don't know it, which is why we have on repeat, like a broken record in this church, the, the admonition to you to be in the word. So, if our mission is to be firmly foundational in the truth of God, then what is the truth that we uphold? So I already kind of told you that truth that we uphold is really the, the fullness of all truths, the, the reality of God's story and the doctrinal truths within Scripture and the gospel itself. But Paul tells us in verse 16 as he, as he shares with us the message of the church what this truth specifically is that Paul's getting at. And he says... Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. First, this is a confession of truth that the church must believe. And if we believe it, Paul says, we also confess it. And our confession is the mystery of godliness. And so this idea of a mystery is common in Paul's writings, and there are many different parts to God's mysteries that are kind of put together throughout Paul's writings. The mystery is ultimately the revelation of the gospel. This, this mystery that Paul keeps talking about in, in many of his letters is never meant to stay a mystery. It's always meant to be revealed. And it's a mystery to people in the first century because Jews specifically and Gentiles who weren't Jews also knew a lot about Jewish culture because the Jews spread out all over the known world. After the Babylonian captivity, many Jews returned to Jerusalem, but many Jews spread out all over, which is why you find Jews in Rome and Macedonia and Asia Minor and Egypt and Israel and everywhere. There's Jews Everywhere. So by the first century, Jews all over the place. The Jewish culture gets in, uh, infiltrates many of other cultures just as much as other cultures are infiltrating Jewish culture. So the idea of what Judaism is is kind of known throughout the world. Everyone knows what it is. And so uh, one of the tenets that, uh, of Judaism that the, before knowing about Christ they believed was that this Messiah would show up and he would kind of conquer the enemies of the Jews and he would reign on earth and the Jews would be happy. And uh, so they don't really fully understand the gospel before Christ shows up. In fact, there's a lot of mystery in the Old Testament. Knowing the fullness of the gospel now, we could look back at the Old Testament and see all the truth of the gospel in the Old Testament. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that um, the Old Testament writings are sufficient to bring you to salvation in Christ. So... I think that is coming off of the idea that knowing what we know in the New Testament, the Old Testament leads us to Christ. But the point is, whether you're Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, or you're a, believer, or you're a person today, the only way to be saved is by faith in the Messiah, period. Old Testament believers are not believers because they follow the Old Testament laws or they sacrifice the right number of goats or lambs or sheep or whatever. That's not how they got saved. They got saved by faith. We see it in Genesis 15 when God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, your seed, Abraham, will bless all the nations. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Belief is faith. He believed God. He, he, had, he put his faith and God's promise about the seed whom is Christ. He believed in Christ and it's counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is saved. And every person in the Old Testament is saved by the same act. They didn't have the fullness of the gospel revealed the way we do. If you'd have asked Abraham in chapter 16, Hey, Abraham, what's the name of that seed that's coming along? He'd be like, I don't know. If you asked Abraham, Hey, do you know about Jesus? He'd be like, who's Jesus? Be like, they don't... Did you hear about the cross? What cross? Did you hear about the empty tomb? What empty tomb? You know, he doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know what we know. He doesn't understand the gospel the way we do. He got a very, he got a sliver of truth from God, and God said, trust me. He says the same thing to Habakkuk. He says, those who, uh, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness and faith are, in, uh, are, are impossible to separate. 
You can't have righteousness without faith. And you can't have faith without righteousness. And so, in the Old Testament, all the way back to Abraham, righteousness required faith in God. Faith in, faith in actually, more, let me be more clear, faith in God's promise of redemption. And as the Old Testament goes along, he reveals more and more and more of his gospel truth until Christ shows up and Christ is incarnate into a body and the Son of God becomes Jesus the man. He is fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. That's, we call that the hypostatic union. Lives a perfect life dies your death for you, lives the life you couldn't live, and takes his righteousness to the cross, bears your unrighteousness on the cross, dies, is buried in the grave, takes your sin to the grave, leaves your sin buried in the graves, and conquers the grave, rising from the grave, leaving your sin and your death buried in death. And once that happens, and then Jesus appears to the apostles and many people for 40 days, and then ascends into heaven. And in doing so, he has completed this mystery that for thousands of years, the Old Testament Jews didn't quite fully get the picture. And so when Paul starts writing letters, he goes, hey Jews, you know this unclear picture we've had for thousands of years about what is really going to happen? What is God's redemptive plan? Well, Christ is the answer. What we have called a mystery is no longer a mystery. That's the nature of the mystery, that it's meant to be revealed. And it is finally revealed in Christ, and Paul writes about the mystery over and over again. And we see it in several places. Colossians 1, 26 through 27. The mystery is that we have Christ in us. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. The mystery is the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the church, or essentially the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 15 to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through his seed, Jesus. Colossians 4.3, the mystery is the word of God, or essentially the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the mystery is the lawlessness of the end times leading to the end of days. That's part of the gospel completion. And in, Colossians, uh, 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 in 1 Corinthians 15.51-52, the mystery is the resurrection of the church into eternal life. And all of this, previously unknown, is now revealed to the world through Christ. Meaning, ultimately, the goal of the gospel of Jesus, the ultimate goal of the gospel of Jesus is, is that it is God's story of redemption that is finally unveiled and revealed. And that is also validated. This idea that the mystery is now exposed and now we can see the truth. That was also validated when Jesus was on the cross and as he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn and split in two. Not only did that serve as a way for God to show that now there's a way to God. You don't have to be a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. Now all you need is Christ. That part of the mystery is unveiled. Not only did it do that, but it validated what was once not possible, but is now possible in Jesus, which is to know God's plan for redemption and to know specifically who God is in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the mystery that is now revealed to us in 1 Timothy 3.16 comes in the form of a confession of the church by six statements of truth. And we're going to go through these six truths. You could call them six confessions. It's really one confession with six points in the confession. The first one is Jesus, this is verse 16, Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh. Conveying the truth that Jesus was once not flesh, but was something else. He was God, pre-incarnate, before God not in the flesh, but who is now God in the flesh. And not only did he go from eternity past, there was no beginning to the Son of God, and he had only spent eternity past, so that's an eternity backwards, which is genuinely unfathomable. And he lived in the presence of his Father with the love of the Holy Spirit between them, living in this eternal expression of perfect and pure love, joy, and satisfaction in himself and with one another. And then he leaves that to become a person, a human, to enter human flesh. And then he lives his life and dies and is buried and resurrected and goes and then ascends to heaven where he will spend the rest of eternity in human flesh. He gave up for eternity his place with the Father to purchase you just to go back to the Father and, and, and take his throne again. But now in the flesh. He has humbled himself to our level, to humanity 
to bear flesh for eternity just to have us join an endless celebration of his glory and to be completely and unimaginably satisfied in him for eternity. We don't deserve that, and neither does he. But that's how much God loves you. That's how full of grace, kindness, and love he is. And that's what it cost Christ to bring God the glory that he deserves. Number two, he was vindicated by the Spirit. This is verse 16. He was vindicated by the Spirit or proven to be God in the flesh. So that's what that means. He's vindicated by the Spirit. The, the fact that he's God in the flesh is proven. So how did he prove his true nature? Through his resurrection. In Isaiah 53.10, he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So that's God the Father. It was God's will to crush his son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, that's Jesus' death, he shall see his offspring, that's the people Jesus saved, he shall prolong his days, that's his resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and that is our eternal security. If God is the one who crushed his son, then his resurrection is God's way of showing the world that he approves of the sacrifice that the son made. So the resurrection of Christ is God the Father's way of saying, hey world, that sacrifice my son made, I'm bringing him back to life to show you that that sacrifice, that death, was sufficient to pay for sins. And Paul confirms this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Christ Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the Spirit vindicates the life, death, and resurrection of who God is in Christ through the resurrection and the power of the Spirit to work out the resurrection of Christ. Meaning his resurrection is foundational truth that the church is to uphold as it is, it not only validates the sacrifice for our sins, but it secures our eternal resurrection to life as well. Number three, he was seen by the angels. Now carrying along with this idea of the resurrection, Jesus was seen by both fallen angels and elect angels after his resurrection as a means to proclaim his victory over sin and death to the demise of the fallen angels and to the praise and the worship from the elect angels. And again, a validation of the completion of his work to sufficiently pay for the sins of his people. Number four, he is proclaimed among the nations, which again is part of the mystery as the Proclamation of the Messiah was believed by the Jews to be an earthly reign. They didn't understand the gospel fully. Now it's unveiled and revealed to us the mysteries now seen. And this is not New Testament only. This is Old Testament. God was talking about the unveiling of the mystery all throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you one example among the many, many examples. I'll give you one. Psalm 46.10. It says something I think everyone in this room has probably said before or has heard before. Be still and know that I am God. Okay, what does that have to do with proclamation among the nations? Has, if, if you have, do you know what the second half of that verse says? The rest of that verse is God's Old Testament proclamation of what he would do through the Messiah to fulfill his earlier promise to Abraham to bless the nations. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Not, I might, I might be exalted, I hope I'm exalted. Man, it'd be great if you guys could exalt me. I will be exalted in the nations and in the earth. I will, what he's saying is, I will fulfill my promise to Abraham that all the nations on earth will be represented eternally in my kingdom because that's what I said I would do and I will do it. This isn't new. The number of times that the New Testament writers reference Old Testament texts and say, can't you guys see what this Old Testament text really was about? It was really about Christ. And we see this in Revelation 7-9 as we look at the end times and John has this vision of the end times and he says that he sees people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. All the nations are blessed by the gospel all people groups would be blessed by the gospel. That doesn't mean every person will be saved, obviously, but a representation from all nations will be included, and that was a mystery until the fulfillment of Christ's work on earth. Now, number five, 
he also believed, he is also believed on in the world. Meaning, not that the entire world will believe in him, but because, we see this in, in John chapter 1, verse 10, where it says, the world did not know him. Yet just a few verses later, John writes in chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who received his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, the belief in Christ in this world is a small group. It's those who believe, those who follow him, those who walk the narrow path, those who are righteous and obey him by the power of his Holy Spirit who manifests Christ out of us. There's a, a, a group that God calls, that Paul calls in Ephesians 1, 4, the elect. In, 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 in this elect group of followers of Christ, God's people, God's children in Christ, serve as another form of validation of the sufficiency of Jesus' work. Do you get the point that Paul is driving home? Our confession in the church is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And we see in finally number six, he was taken up in glory. Just as Jesus' resurrection was God's validation of the sufficiency of Jesus' death for the sins of his people, so also his ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 is God's validation of the life and work of Christ. Or it's further validation of the fulfillment and sufficiency of the gospel. It's God's way of saying, well done, son, come home. Your work is done. God's approval of the work of Christ is complete in his ascension. And he says, I'm not going to leave you alone, though. I'll send you my helper. And he sends his Holy Spirit to fill us, to indwell us, to consume us, to lead us, to guide us, to direct us, to cause our obedience. And, to, and all of that comes after he regenerates our hearts and redeems us in Christ. Amen. And we see this idea of the validation of Christ's work in his ascension in other places too, Psalm 110 prophesied that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of God. And in several places in the New Testament, that truth is confirmed. That truth is confirmed over and over and over again in the New Testament that, that, that Christ has finished the work, that his work is done and it's sufficient, and that, he's, and that he, he now gets a specific place called glory. That's what Paul's saying. He was taken up in glory. And we see this many places in the New Testament. I had to pick one that said it, so I just picked Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sitting indicates that the work is finished, which Jesus himself declared while on the cross when he said in John 19.30, it is finished. The Greek word there is tetelestai. And it is Jesus' way of saying, I'm done. And then he's taken up in glory in his ascension after his resurrection. So what this final statement in the church's confession reveals is the importance and the aim of Christ to magnify the glory of God his Father in his own exaltation. God's glory required the complete and perfect work of Christ and the church now declares that truth as it upholds this foundational truth in our continued gospel proclamation. So what I'm really saying is, if you look at verse 16, we've got this little confessional statement. And there are so many churches that live by other confessions, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. And they live by these confessions. And it's like, what if, what if now this is going to sound crazy, but what if instead of following some man-written creed, we, oh, I don't know, followed one that was written by God? Like, that would be way easier to wade through, don't you think? Like, because the Apostles' Creed has things in it that I don't agree with. Like, it says that Jesus went to hell. Not true. Not in the Bible. He did not go to hell. That's not what that means. I'm not even going to talk about that right now. It's a totally different subject. But my point is, you look at something like that, and it's like, I don't agree with that. Well, it's a man-made statement. Well, this, you can't argue with. It's a confession of the church that... that that Paul wrote by the Holy Spirit, was written by God for us, why don't we make these our confessions? And so Paul gives us this beautiful confession right at this pivotal turning point in the book. And so now we have this idea that we are a pillar and a buttress of truth and that that truth is this, this confession about who Christ is and, is and what he's done and the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ. So last thing, what does it mean to us today?
We don't... We need to begin by looking inwardly. Like we can't just... I think we're trying to fix the church. I think there's people trying to fix the church. You're never going to fix the church. Stop trying to fix the church. Stop trying to fix other people. You're not their God. God will deal with them. And he might use you. That's fine. But even if he uses you, you're not fixing them. He will. Let's stop worrying about other people. Hey, while we're at it, let's stop talking about other people. And let's start looking in the mirror. And looking inward and recognizing and checking our own hearts and our own perspectives and our own thoughts and feelings and our own obedience and sins and things. Why don't we start evaluating ourselves? It starts inwardly. We're not going to fix the church. But Christ can fix you and it requires your humility to bow before him and let him work on you and he will. And if we all did that, guess what? He'd fix the church. (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? So instead of fixing each other, let's fix ourselves, uh, which really means not you fixing yourself, but Christ fixing you. If we all do that, then he'll start using us in each other's life to fix each other, and we will grow together as a united body as one. This is why why we push all week long. Let's be together, be together, be together, be together. Come on, join us. Bible study, life group, prayer, whatever. Let's let's get together. Let's, Let's grow together. I want that for you, God wants that for you, and that will produce growth. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we trust you, and your word is powerful and magnificent, and we believe that you can do this work in us. Um, Let these confessions that we just walked through be the confessions of our heart, and then the confessions that we speak, and the confession that we live, and let us apply it to ourselves first so that we would all grow into Christ-likeness. And as we grow together, we'd be growing in unity. We need your work. We need your help. Only you can do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.